This episode of Confessions from the Nocturne Nebula is brought to you by Colleen Mally Schwartz of the Mally Schwartz Group and Clients First Realty. Are you tired of forking over money to a landlord month after month? Don't you wish you can invest that money in your own future? Maybe carve out a small piece of this universe to call your very own. Well, now is the time you should start thinking about finding a more permanent setup. And Colleen Mally Schwartz can help make that happen by finding you the perfect forever home to fit your budget. And the best part? With Colleen, she'll rebate one-third of her commissions to pay towards your closing costs. So the savings start before you even unpack a single box. Already a homeowner and looking to sell? Don't know where to turn? Colleen Mally Shorts will list your home at reduced commissions, saving you more money to put down on your next house. Property in the Valley of the Sun goes pretty quickly, but there's no reason you should get shut out of ownership, and Colleen can help. Head to ColleenSellsAZ.com for more information or to set up that initial appointment today. Once again, that's ColleenSellsAZ.com. And remember, please support the businesses that support local arts. I never meant to let this happen. What do you do? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I never... Yabya Music and Arts presents Confessions from the Nocturne Nebula Written by Carly Schwerman and Dale Rasmussen Original music and sound design by Devin Morris Executive producers Carly Schwerman and Mark Anderson Episode 3, Coop Jubilee. Mistakes? I've made plenty in my life. I once lost 8,000 kopecks of someone else's money on a single roll of the dice. I ate homemade sparga stew fermented for me by a young lady I met at the festival's on Clore and wound up nursing parasitic worms for three weeks. I've picked fights with guys I knew I couldn't beat, made promises I knew I couldn't keep. Hell, I even let myself fall in love once upon a time. So trust me when I tell you, there's two kinds of mistakes. Some you know right away just how bad you've spaced yourself. But usually, it's not until much later that the true implications of your actions roll over you like an angry tide. This mistake? Putting a desperate scumbag with a load of white-hot contraband on a collision course with a girl holding just enough money in her pocket that it didn't seem ridiculous for her to believe there might be more out there? I didn't know how this one was going to play out. Deets, a guy that would never be as useful or worthwhile as a wicker starship hull, could topple everything I'd built on Aldfar Station. If he was still alive, I think I'd happily kill him myself. But he wasn't alive. 
Dietz had gotten himself shoved into a reclamation unit where a sanitation tech with a weak heart found him that morning, eyes bulging out in fear and his tongue hanging to his chin. The old timer went to the medical division. Dietz went to the morgue. No stab wound, no sign of bludgeoning. Coroner said he died of a heart attack. Probably nobody would have looked twice at it. Burning out the pumps, not an uncommon way for guys like Dietz to wind up, but for two things. The first was that Dietz had been seen in my bar, dropping 10 large at my tables. And the second was the terror on his dead face and the overtly careless way he'd been disposed of. That made two facts inescapable. Dietz's death wasn't natural causes, and whoever was responsible wanted it known. I'd been sure that was the end of it, whatever Dietz had taken from the syndicate, and I was more sure now some high-ranking mobster was behind this than ever. Whatever he'd stolen, they'd gotten it back. If they hadn't gotten it off the coal ridge before rigging the firebomb, surely they'd taken it directly from his corpse. Not the happiest of endings, but one where no more blood got spilled, and so one I could live with. But standing there in an upstairs bedroom at Salome's, looking over what little you could make out of cherry cordial between the burns, the bandages, and the narcotics, my blissful notion that this catastrophe was over crumbled around me like a gingerbread house in an earthquake. Whoever had clipped Dietz was serious about recovering his lost merchandise, which he had not done because I was looking at the dazed and injured woman who had just admitted to having it. Cherry, listen to me. You said you got a box from Dietz. Yeah, the, the wooden one. The pretty one. Yeah, I know which box. How'd you find out about it, kiddo? How'd you get your hands on it? Dietz gave it to me. After you talked in your office, he said, you said I should take it to Thalia. What the hell, Stone? I didn't say anything like that, Z. Not even close. Then why did he give it to her? He said you told him to give me the box in your office. You told him that I was going to Thalia and that I should take the box and the money. I, I thought you did it because you knew I was short. After we talked, I figured you were just giving me the chance to make a little extra. He told me that he was going to make a bet on double zero, and I know that's the signal, so I just thought that... <sighs> From behind me, I could feel Zara's stare burning through the back of my skull. I knew she was trying to decide if I had any brains left in there at all, and that notion didn't make me happy in the slightest, because I was starting to have doubts of my own. Hey, Cherry, don't worry, kiddo. No one's mad at you. None of this is your fault. But we do need to figure out everything that's going on, and I need your help to do that, okay? So stay with me. When did you get the box from Dietz? After you talked to him. Before he placed the bet, he, he found me by the bar, gave me the money and the bag, told me you said to play it cool and not to talk to anyone about it especially Watts. Told me not to bring it up to you either. Everyone knows you try to keep your hands clean. Thinking back to the night before, I tried to picture Dietz as I'd seen him after our meeting. 
when he was leaving my 10,000 copact payment on the roulette table and staring at me with contempt twisting up his face even uglier than usual. Now I understood that smug, hateful expression. He thought he'd outsmarted me. That expression had been so mystifying the night before that I hadn't noticed whether or not he'd had that damn knapsack over his shoulder. I closed my eyes and tried to call up the memory of him standing there, tried to remember that Cherry was wrong, that he had the sack with that ticking time bomb on him as he walked out the door. But I knew I was kidding myself. It was almost depressing how little effort it took to remember the image in living color. He hadn't had the knapsack. He didn't have it because he'd already passed it off to Cherry when I watched him walk out. Maybe he had outsmarted me after all. And you had the knapsack with you when you left, when you went to the Coleridge. When I found them all dead. Yes, when you found them, you had it with you then. I did. I brought it with me along with another bag with my money and my dress. Oh, oh, my dress. We have to find it. It's the blue one. And Did you I, bring them with you when you left the Coleridge? Yes. You're sure? You didn't leave them, didn't drop them. You said you fell. I fell, but I didn't leave them, I'm sure. And you said that you came from the Tower Sect through the underlevels of Old Aldfar. I, I, I think so. It, It's so fuzzy. I more remember just flashes, like scattered moments. I know I was on the horn, and there were people everywhere, and I was so scared. I made for the stockyards. Solomays, I might have passed through the memorial gardens, but that doesn't seem right. But you didn't have the bag or the box when you got here. Where did you leave it? I'm not, I, I can't remember. I must have put them somewhere. Where, Cherry? Where did you put them? Nolan. I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> okay. Okay. You get some rest. Maybe... Maybe you'll remember more after you feel a little better. Cherry sobbed as my guilt started to set in. I wanted to take her by the hand, but the thought of the burns healing under her bandages stopped me. So I just stood there by her bed, feeling about as comforting as a padded brick to the skull. Zara, as ever intuiting the right play, rubbed Cherry's leg and cooed as the wounded Maul in the bed started to cry herself out. After she'd gone quiet, just as I was thinking about nodding Zara towards the door so we could let her exhaustion and the drugs in her system carry her into what was sure to be a fitful slumber, I heard her whisper to me again. I really am sorry. There's nothing to be sorry for. We'll go looking later. We'll see if we can't find your dress. And my money. Yes, <laughs> of course. And your money. And the bottles. Come again? What did she say? Bottles, Cherry? In the box. The bottles, the pretty ones. Pretty bottles. So pretty. And the milk inside, it was even prettier. Milk? Milk bottles? It, it wasn't milk. Dietz told me what it was when he showed me, but I don't... Pretty bottles, and it looked like milk. Yes, except... Except it sparkled. Like stars. Like a million, million stars. 
tried to cheat you. Right. That's what Deets called it. Try to... Wait, is that... Let's get out of here, Z. Let her sleep. You get some rest, Cherry. Mm, okay, Nolan. We tiptoed outside the door and gingered it closed. No sooner had the faint click of the latch evaporated into the air like match smoke than Zara spun on me. What is that? Is that what I think it is? The bottles? The tri- trito- Tritogenia. That, that's what I'm thinking it is, isn't it? I've heard of it before. That's the stuff the Madre Benevolencia brew. Yeah, that's it. Most expensive hooch in all of the Nocturne, if you're willing to chance the punishment for being caught with it off-world. Which is? Vastly unpleasant all the way to the end. Real making an example type stuff. And she's sitting on a box full. What does that mean for her? In the right hands, that stuff's a half a million kopecks per bottle. And there's a short list of people with both the chutzpah and resources to traffic this outside the compact. There's no two ways around it. Deeds took a shipment off of one of the big-time syndicates. They don't quit playing until the buzzer sounds. Until they find what they're looking for and make sure somebody nearby is punished appropriately, Aldvar is going to be up to our eyeballs in mobster muscle and Pinkertons. What the hell happened to your luck, Stone? You're sure they sent Pinkertons in? Oh, sure as rain at a funeral of which we can expect several in the coming days. You need to get her out of here, Nolan. Well, what I need to do is get that box off the station, get the hounds running in another direction. You need to do both. Yeah, you're right, but I can't. Not until Cherry tells me where it is. She doesn't remember. And thus we reach an impasse. We could go look for it. Nah, that's a no-go. Five will get you ten that Wallace has got a squad watching the club. If I'm not on the floor tonight, playing like everything's sunshine and roses, she'll hear about it. And she's got herself worked into rare form this time. Now I need to keep her quiet and off my radar until we can put this thing to bed. And how do we do that? We find the box. You just said that- We find the box tonight. Today, Cherry gets a chance to sleep off the last 24 hours. And as an added bonus, you and I get to do the same thing. We get a few hours of rest, open the doors at six, have another fantastic, totally unsuspicious evening. And once the fires are stoked, Cherry can either remember where she stowed her bag, or she and I can walk up one end of the station and down the other until we find it. What, you're just gonna go walking around with a dead lady? Cherry's been one of our most popular attractions for years. You won't get past the neighborhood before you're made. Uh, you're right. We're going to have to do something about that. But first, I've got 40 winks that are starting to wilt. I don't even know how you can think about sleeping. Oh, I plan on doing a lot more than thinking about it. And though I know you're allergic to good advice, I'd recommend you try to do the same. Sleep well, Nolan. I left Zara and headed to the apartment I keep in the basement. I had an appointment with a hard mattress and a soft pillow that I hadn't seen in a while, and I was starting to feel like a cad for neglecting their friendship. When sleep came, it didn't come alone, and my dreams were fitful, sweaty affairs filled with fire and blood. I was almost grateful when my alarm went off. 
almost. Feeling anything but rested, I hauled my carcass out of bed and shambled in counterfeit hope towards the shower. The mood when I climbed the stairs to Salome's wasn't exactly comforting. The staff who'd been around for Cherry's arrival earlier that morning had been directed to keep quiet to those who hadn't about the closed door on the second floor, on pain of Zara if their lips went loose. I didn't doubt their discretion. I don't bring folks with an overly talkative streak on the staff as a general rule, and I had faith in the threat of Zed to discourage any sudden bursts of chattiness. But their concerns and unvoiced fears had seeped into the air, and no amount of vanilla or orchid oil was going to mask it. Compared to most evenings, the setup that night was reserved. Compared to the gaiety of just a day ago, we might as well have been hosting a wake. I couldn't fault them. I did my best to put on a bright smile, but I was struggling myself, and I wasn't a 20-year-old working for tips and clueless about what was going on around me. I went through all the motions, inspecting the wait staff, sampling scotch with Winston, but for the first time that I can remember, as I stood in my office and listened to the evening begin, I didn't feel any elation or excitement, just exhaustion and a growing sense of dread. It was time. I passed Zara on the stairs down to the main floor, but if she was as tired as I was, I think she was doing a better job of concealing it. She was dressed to the nines, dark hair done up in tight curls, and not so much as a shadow under her eye to betray the all-nighter we'd had. She gave me a wan smile of encouragement, but said nothing. That was fine by me. I didn't feel much like talking anyway. Of course, that's exactly what I was going to have to do for at least the next hour. Like I told Zara, Yoli Wallace was sure to have several of her indie flat feet posted outside, keeping an eye on the club, but I wouldn't have put it past her to put a couple of her folks in a tux or an evening gown and send them inside. So much as I might like to turtle up in my office all night, I couldn't take the risk so I'd have to spend most of my evening doing the charming host shtick. For 20 minutes, I ignored the sourness spreading through my stomach like rot through a week old melon and gave toothy grins to the early evening tourists, pumping handshakes and dropping dishonest compliments like I was running for public office. Most of the chatter I heard that night was about the explosion on the coal ridge. Guesses about what caused it ranged from catastrophic engineering tragedy to a load of new experimental military-grade explosive that had been mishandled. I nodded along where I was meant to, shook my head in resigned, mystified grief at the moments where I was supposed to do that. Comparatively few folks had anything to say about the dead junk chain fished out of a reclamation barrel that morning, and of those who did, no one drew any connections to the explosion. Really, for all the theories either way, no one got close to what really happened that night. And I had no interest in correcting other people's theories. 
I'd been listening to a young guy with dark hair and darker glasses drone on for what seemed like hours about the software interlock something or other, when a familiar slab of beef masquerading as a man's hand thudded across my shoulder. I managed to keep my knees from buckling and turned to meet the gaze of Flynn Morgan, damnably alert and cheerful considering the state he'd been in this morning. I wondered if I was the only one who was feeling the worse for wear after the way the day had gone. And I immediately thought of Cherry upstairs. It felt like a heel. There he is. Ooh, you look like hell, Stoney. I think you need a drink. Don't call me that, Flynn. I'll go out on a limb, guess that I should get you a drink while I'm grabbing my own. Well, now I've heard a lot worse ideas. Let's go with that, see how it turns out. I headed for the bar stepped around Winston and grabbed a bottle. Morgan followed me as far as a bar stool, then hoisted his considerable heft on top. Did you hear about Dietz? Yeah, I heard. I suppose it's the talk of the place tonight. Guy like that and the way he was acting at the tables last night, then they find him this morning. Hey, you want to keep your voice down? Superstitious gamblers lose money hand over fist. I don't need you chasing them away. Right, sorry. Here, drink this. Give that loud mouth of yours something else to do. Oh, thanks. Oh, that's good. That's good. Rough day, Flynn? I don't even know where to start. With all the drama going around the Coleridge and Dietz that I'm having to deal with, you think they both happen to Cascades, not in the AEL and Indy districts. I got citizens squawking at me. I got Wallace coming at us every 10 M's with passenger manifests and requests for witness last knowns and every other damn thing. I swear that old bat thinks she runs the whole station. Yoli's a pain in the ass, no doubt. Yeah, I guess I'm preaching to the choir there, but don't stop with her. Believe it or not, I got word sent to me at none other than Malachi Stratford was asking some questions in my neighborhood today. Not that he had the courtesy to call ahead and let me know he was coming. He was in the GC districts today. That's what I heard from one of my guys working that Helene Hicks case. Wallace and Stratford in the same day, huh? You got some kind of luck, Morgan. I decided it was best to not mention my own visits with Flynn's colleagues today. Nothing to be gained by comparing your troubles with someone else's. Good advice I picked up a long time ago. You don't know the half of it, Stoney. Not the half of it. On top of that, I got a load of acolytes that got liquored up and started smashing pieces at an art gallery. I had two of my guys today. We couldn't get on the comp for an hour. Was on the edge of calling for station lockdown when he finally found them doing the whips and chains thing at one of the body hours on the horn. During their duty shift. <laughs> Shit, you not. You want to hear the worst part? Don't tell anyone, but the younger kid, Holtz, he's getting married next month. I guess his groom-to-be ain't lighting his fire. I guess not, especially if she's a bride-to-be. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I got Wallace, I got Stratford, I got two guys playing Lever Daddy on the clock. I got a load of drunk priests playing Art Critic. What else? I had some damn diplomatic shuttle from the compact come in and take up one of our standing reserve berths. They pull that shit all the time. And no one sends me a clearance order till three weeks after they're gone. Had three different lieutenants call out. And all of that on top of... Morgan cast a long, lingering look at the second floor. And his smile dimmed a little. 
you want to hear something funny, Nolan? Yeah, I'm game. Today's not the first day. I mean, there's been a lot of pain in the ass days lately. And not long ago, I got to thinking, it's been a while since I took me a vacation. Okay. So the other day, I did a little checking, and I realized I got nearly two months of time banked. You'd take yourself a decent cruise with that kind of room on your calendar. I could, right? But actually, the other night, or I guess it was last night, damn, it was just last night that she left. I was thinking, what if I didn't just take a cruise? What if I went to Thalia? What if I went with her to Thalia and, you know, made her a real offer? You're kidding. I'm not. I'm serious. I, I was serious. I, or I think I was serious. I told her a bunch of times that I'd marry her, but I never really meant it. And she knew it. But last night, I was thinking I could do it. I could really do it, you know? Flynn, come on. You're... If Cherry had even raised her eyebrows when you mentioned marriage, you would have hopped the first freighter off station. And if you couldn't find one, you'd have jumped out of an airlock. Now maybe, after two months, planet side, you'd work up the courage to slink back in here and blame the whole thing on me pitching you a load of bad booze. That sounds like something I'd do. Look, Morgan, I'm your friend. And as your friend, I'm gonna talk truth to you. You've been working under a heap of shit for a long time. You're four kinds of burnout. And you just lost one of the best ladies you ever had. That's not all she... No, no, it wasn't all she was. But she was that. (sighs) Yeah, she was. You miss her. I get it, I miss her too. But it don't change the facts. And the fact is, you're not a heartbroken sucker pining for what might have been. So buck up. Puppy dog eyes don't suit you. Yeah, you're right. I guess it just... I know. I know, Flynn. Here's what you do. Finish your drink. When you're done with that, finish mine too. After that, you find Chewy, and you tell him I said to take you upstairs and introduce you to Janine. Janine, you say? Janine. Have a nice time. Morgan looked like he was working up a protest... But at the last second, he decided to drown it with the rest of his drink, pulled down in one long swallow. He deftly plucked my own glass from my hand, raised it to me, and shot me that supernova smile. You're a hell of a guy, Stoney. Anyone ever tell you that? He marched off in search of a way to shake loose his troubles. I envied him. Enough time had passed that I needed to head upstairs myself. Only once I got up there and got on the other side of the door that had been closed since the evening at Salome's began, my troubles would only be getting started. When I walked into the room, Zara was massaging dirt-brown pigment onto the stubble atop Cherry's head. Her fiery locks, for so long something of a hallmark and now sheared wholesale, were scattered around the floor like the grisly aftermath of a massacre. She was all but engulfed in a formless mustard jacket and bulky green work pants. And as she sat there, weeping silently and staring at the devastation around her with a set jaw, I saw her 
maybe for the first time, as Cordelia Monroe and not Cherry Cordial. For some reason, I couldn't put my finger on. The thought made me feel like a jackass. She looked up when I walked in, and while her tears didn't stop, and her hands were dancing a lurid, spastic tango around one another, her stare was resolute. Hey, sweetheart. You doing okay? Yeah, I'm all right. Her hands continued to twist over each other, and I realized that she was fighting down the urge to touch her head, to maybe find out that her hair was fine and the carnage around her was just another stage in an elaborate and sick practical joke. Zara finished her ministrations and took a step back, leveling an appraising stare at Cherry. What do you think? The truth was, Cherry looked a fright. The clipper job was pretty sloppy, with a patch about the size of my thumb that had been all but missed over her left ear, and two full-on bald spots. The dye had done the job of dulling Cherry's red hair to a more earthy tone, but it was also spread across her scalp in a manner not unlike shoe polish. I was a little gratified that Zara's impressive skill set didn't seem to extend as far as cosmetology. Or, as she once again demonstrated, great tact. Looks pretty shitty. I did what I could with what I had here. Hey now, I think you look great, kid. Sure, Nolan. She's gonna need a hat. Do we still have that lost and found box in the coat room? I think so. I'll be right back. Like a shot, Zara was out of the room, and I was alone with Cherry. Her pain, exhaustion, and grief came off of her in waves, but she was heroically silent. I fumbled for words for a moment, driven by that ancient, stupid, primal need to offer comfort to someone beyond comforting. Every word seemed to crash like lead weights to the floor and the crush of her silence. I'm sorry we had to do this, Cherry. It's fine. It's just that we can't take the chance. No, I I know, I get it. It's okay. I realized that I wanted her to be angry, to curse me for this final indignity on top of everything else I'd inadvertently subjected her to. I wanted her to spit hate at me and come scratching for my eyes, but I wasn't to be that lucky. Instead, she just sat still, too tired to do anything more than play the willing receptacle for all of the galaxy's spite. A brutal eternity passed in the handful of moments before Zara returned. Not a lot to pick through, but I think this should work. Without any ceremony, Z stuffed the hat over Cherry's head. It covered the worst of the stain across her scalp, which was fortunate. You didn't have to get too close or look too long to recognize the splotching at her brow or over her ears, but neither did it announce itself. If we kept moving and avoided too much scrutiny, we might be okay. Well, Cordelia, I really did a number on you. I owe you a drink, but I think this'll do the job. You'll forgive me eventually, right? Thank you, Miss Sara. I appreciate your help. That's okay. 
It doesn't have to be now. You'll forgive me someday. Maybe when it grows back. <laughs> there she is. Okay. I've got flesh to pedal. You guys gonna be all right? We're good. You sure you shouldn't wait a little longer? No. I think I've made the rounds enough to not be missed for an hour or two. We'll head out, find the box and Cherry's things, and get back before close. Okay. You keep them safe out there, okay, Ch Cordelia? I don't want to have to train another owner. Yes, ma'am. Good. I'll have that drink waiting for you when you bring them back. Cherry managed half a smile, and Z nodded, satisfied with the ground she'd gained. As she headed to the door, she gave me a look that told me I was to bring Cherry back safe, and said it in a much less playful tone than the one she'd used with the younger woman a moment earlier. Then the door clicked softly shut behind her, and Cherry and I were alone again. Well, Miss Monroe, sooner begun, sooner done. You ready to do this? Sure. I guess I couldn't expect any enthusiasm on her part. Cherry'd given Zara her reserves, and I certainly felt none myself. In that moment, all I felt was a blind compulsion to find the tritogenia that bastard Deeds had given Cherry for transport to Thalia. Once I had that, I could send it one direction into Nocturne, hopefully with the Syndicate's hired goons in tow like rats following the Pied Piper, and then send Cherry in a different one, right back to the life she'd been planning on the night before. I poked my head out the door to find the balcony empty. I waved to Cherry and we walked out of the room, towards the stairs. There was a stiffness to her gait that I couldn't figure, until I realized that I was doing it myself. It was an odd posture that came from the tension of choking down the mad need to break into a sprint. I took a deep breath and forced myself to loosen up. Cherry charged a step and a half ahead of me, then drew short and turned back to me. I took another breath, signaling her to do likewise. She caught my signal immediately, and her stride eased. She even gave me a smile. Not a wan, half-hearted one like she'd sent Z away with, but a full-on beaming grin that didn't make it all the way to her eyes. We made our way with careful nonchalance to the coat room. I opened the door, surprising Charlotte at the counter. Mr. Stone, Miss Zara was just here. Who's- We're not here, Charlotte. We never were, right? I, I don't- We were never here, Charlotte, right? I pressed a gold rim into the tip jar. No, of course not, sir. At a girl. Charlotte went suddenly blind and deaf, humming tunelessly to herself as she turned away from us to busy herself with the check tickets. Cherry said nothing as she followed me to the back of the coat closet and watched as I reached behind the hanging robes, capes, and cloaks to the hidden latch under the rod. A section of the wall popped out an inch and swung easily open as I pulled it further. 
We stepped through the door, which I pulled shut behind me. The magnetic latch caught it, and we were in what I called my private staircase. Another door, the door Cherry must have come through that morning, opened onto the alley behind the club. Like the door from the coat room, when it was closed, it was all but invisible. The staircase, such as it was, led down about three flights, ending in a steel hatch set into the floor. That's where we were headed, for the underlevels of the station, for old Aldfar. I gestured for Cherry to follow me as I made my way down the steps in the low light. I can't see. Follow me. I'll move slow. Your eyes will adjust. Pretty lucky you built this escape hatch. Well, it's lucky, but I didn't build it. You didn't? Nope. Part of the package when I bought the building. Well, I guess it's double lucky for you then. Oh, that wasn't luck. I knew it was there. That's part of the reason I bought the place. Mm, I don't follow. I'll see. Uh, how do I explain this? You know how Salome's is in the stockyards? Sure. Well, you know why they call it the stockyards? I guess I never really thought about it. The districts have the names they have, you know? Well, sure, but most of them came from somewhere. The stockyards is called the stockyards because a couple of hundred years ago, the entire area was nothing but large-scale storage from one end to the other. Storage? Oh, yeah. So you got to remember that once upon a time, Aldfar started as a launch and repair point for the first vessels from Earth. And for a long time after that, it was really nothing more than a pit stop for the seed ships. Fast forward a couple centuries, and when I bought Salome's, it was already a nightclub. A shitty one, but a nightclub. But I did my research, and it's been a hell of a lot more than that over the centuries. At one point, it had been a fashion boutique. Uh, for a while before that, it had been a small manufacturing station for replicas of Earth antiques that I gather weren't exactly marketed as replicas. One day, if we get a chance, I'll walk you through the whole history of the place. It's honestly pretty good stuff. But the building started, way back in the way back, as a water reclamation facility. So it was connected by this maintenance hatch to the purifiers in Old Aldfar. And you knew all that before you bought the place? You'd be surprised what a little knowledge of history and a couple diligent visits to the records division on the station can get you. I guess. So I knew when I bought the joint about the hatch. All I built were the doors in the coat closet in the alley to keep it tucked away. Out of sight, out of mind. Got some help with those from my pal Klimp. Klimp? Klimp. Met him on Joe Costa. Nice guy. You'd like him. What is he? An architect? Sure. But architect is a really funny way to pronounce cat burglar. <laughs> Wait, a cat burglar? Okay, we're here. Stand back while I get this hatch open. Okay, that's really dark. She wasn't wrong. The hatch opened onto a tight shaft running straight down into the bowels of the station. There were steel rods embedded down one side, forming a narrow ladder. The shaft was illuminated only by sparse utility fixtures, which, running in low power mode, barely cast enough light to keep themselves out of darkness. The rest of the pit was a nightmare of coal-black shadow. I hate the underlevels. I know. Me too. 
but you said you'd gone through here earlier, so we should check it out. Even if we don't find the stuff, it's safer than walking the streets, even at night. Safer? Well, we're less likely to be recognized anyway. We'll get in and out quick. Retrace your steps. You ready? I'll go first. I suppose. We ambled onto the ladder and started making our way down. I heard Cherry hiss above me. What's wrong? Nothing. What's wrong? I'm fine. Let's just go. (sighs) All at once, I remembered her hands. Her bandaged hands and the fresh burns and blisters. The hands she was having to use to grasp the ladder. You sure you're all right? Let's just go. Please. And so, we started the climb. Climbing into the underlevels. Technically, old Aldfar is always a chore and feels like it takes longer than it does. It's the way dread anticipation stretches time, like the event horizon of a black hole. I never liked coming to the underlevels, though I knew them like the back of my hand, at least the ones around Salome's. Like I told Cherry, a little knowledge of the station's schematics can make all the difference in the world. But while I knew these tunnels well enough to walk them with my eyes closed, I always hated actually coming down here. Old Aldfar had, in days gone by, simply been Aldfar Station, the very first foundation of what would grow to be the unofficial capital city of the Nocturne, and entirely functional in design. It was a station created without the idea of people living on it, simply being a fixed navigational point and refueling platform in original concept. When the first terraforming efforts went bad, and people got tired of being squashed into seed ships, folks got creative and started building what would become the districts on the exterior of the station, and they expanded the atmospheric shielding around the new buildings. What had been Aldfar Station became Old Aldfar, a haven of maintenance tunnels, water pipes, and a labyrinth of data cable and fueling lines. A lot of the old systems still run, most of the station's water is still purified down there, and some of the space has been converted, like the slaughterhouse kill floors in the old docks. But it was that maze of dead ends and hidey holes that gave the underlevels their reputation. A small army of the station's invisible homeless, refugees from across known space, made their warrens in the gloom under the city, and they shared that space with those who came below for danger violence. There, away from the view of any law or even the stars, people regularly engaged in every manner of dark business. We climbed slowly, and mostly in silence, with only an occasional choked-off cry or muffled curse from Cherry. After a handful of minutes that felt like an hour, I lowered my foot onto gangplank instead of another rung of the ladder. I was there. Cherry joined me a moment after. I don't remember the climb being that bad this morning. You were pretty out of it. I'm not surprised. Oh, delirium's got its bright side, I guess. When you're right, you're right. You feeling clear-headed now? Maybe too much. Watching her rub her bandaged hands together in the low light of old Aldfar, I could tell what she meant. 
Even in this gloom, her eyes had regained most of their usual sparkle, and her voice was clear as well. So it looked like she'd come out on the other side of the cocktail Zara had whipped up for her earlier. But now there was no buffer, no haze of adrenaline or narcotics between Cherry and her pain, her memories of what she'd seen on the coal ridge, and her own terror about what might come next. All in all, if I were in her shoes, I think I would have preferred the fog. You said you took the underlevels from the tower sack to the horn, right? I'm pretty sure. I remember the old Earth Museum pretty clearly. Okay. Stick close to me. It's not too far, but there's some rough characters down here. Is that a ploy to get me to hold your hand, Nolan? What if I said it was? She didn't answer but took my hand and together we strolled into the shadows of old Aldfar, seeming for all the world like nothing more than a pair of lovers sharing a romantic stroll amidst the junk chains, perverts, and winos. We'd been hiking for nearly ten minutes when we came to a section of tunnels where even the meager maintenance lights had given out. Watch your step. I can see well at- oh, blast! She must have caught her foot on some low pipe or tubing, because quicker than a hiccup, Cherry's hand flew from mine and I heard her thud to the floor with a smack, like a raw steak pushed off a kitchen table. Even on the ground next to me, I couldn't get even a glimpse of her. I pulled my grandfather's lighter from my pocket. She squeezed her eyes shut against the light, then looked up at me from the floor. Her hat had fallen off, and she was rubbing at her right ankle like she was petting a kitten she'd rather choke to death. You all right? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm fine. Just, what's one more bruise? I offered her my hand, which she took. But halfway through standing up, she hissed and toppled back to the floor. Curse it! Did you break your ankle? No, it's not broke. I, I just twisted it pretty good. Can you walk? Yeah. Yeah, let's, let's try it again. I plucked her hat from the ground and offered it to her. She pulled it over her mess of a haircut and thrust her hand out to me. This time when I took it, she kept her weight on her left leg and my assistance was no mere formality. She leaned hard against me once she was on her feet. You sure you're all right? Yeah, just let's take it slow. I'm, I'm sure I'll walk it off in an M or two. Sure thing, kid. Sure thing. Thank you, Nolan. It's no trouble, Cherry. I mean, for everything. Don't thank me yet, sweetheart. We still gotta get that box back and get you home to Thalia. You can remember to thank me after that's done. What did you say? I said you can thank me after you're done. No. No, you didn't. You said I can... Remember. Remember. Nolan, the box isn't on the horn. We're going the wrong way. I don't follow. The, the gardens in the memorial district. I went there first. I, I... I remember. I took the bag to the memorial gardens and I hid it. You're sure? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I know where it is. Well, the memorial district's actually not too far off. Not any farther than the horn would be anyway. Only this way. You can walk. Y- yeah. Just, like I said, slow. With my lighter in one hand and the other wrapped around Cherry, 
the two of us shuffled forward. The walk took us 20 minutes, and the climb up the ladder when we got underneath the Memorial District took another 10 on Cherry's bum ankle. She didn't complain. Finally, I popped open the hatch at the top of the maintenance ladder, which opened to a small enclosure stuffed with paint, tools, garbage bags, and safety vests. One of the municipal storage shacks, and if my own memory could be trusted, we weren't far from the entrance to the public memorial gardens. I freed myself from Cherry's grip and eased closed the hatch we'd come through. Once it was shut, I thumbed open the latch on the storage shack door. Let's get going. Okay. You need a hand? No, I can manage. You're sure? That climb couldn't have been easy. Well, it didn't make things better. But if I'm hanging off of you like a drunk teenager, it'll draw more attention than just being a woman with a limp. Okay, your call. After you, then. Calling the move she made a limp would have been generous. She shambled forward three or four steps, grimacing every time she planted her foot. Finally, after a loud hiss, she managed to get a hold of her stride. I couldn't help but glance around to see if her performance had drawn any stares, but I didn't see anyone, let alone anyone looking in our direction. Thankfully, at this early hour of the morning, or late hour of the night, depending on your angle, not many people were out walking in this part of the city. The Memorial District was for all those straight-laced AEL inhabitants who might not have the name or the money for that Starlight District address, but they like to keep the neighborhood looking prim and proper. This hour of the day was reserved for those who partied all night, or who had the kind of job that dragged you out of bed before station sunup. Actual work. People who lived in the stylish flats of this neighborhood wouldn't typically associate with anyone who did either of those things. Was I nervous escorting Cherry through those streets? Sure, a little, but I trusted Zara's eye for disguise. If she said we could pass by Flynn Morgan and he wouldn't take notice of my companion unless he stopped us to talk, I believed her. Cherry, as it turns out, was a natural, unsurprisingly. She ambled alongside me, talking only when she should and clamming up in the rare cases when folks were around. She limped along with a smile on her face, and her leaden stride was a club she used to bat away any scrutiny as we walked. Of the bare handful of people we encountered that morning, most seemed to come down with that allergy-to-eye contact folks sometimes get when faced with someone with an awkward gait like Cherry had on display. The walk to the Memorial Gardens wasn't fast, but it passed without episode. Cherry gave me a tug as we walked through the arched gate. It's over this way, Nolan. Second level near the Rose Collection, just past the Water Gardens. You sure seem to know your way around here. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. You ever hear of Ricky Hamper? Can't say as I knew him, but the name rings a bell. I'll bet. Ricky got around. Things went south for him in the end, I guess, but not long after I got to Alvar, he was pretty sweet on me. (laughs) Couldn't tell from his talk, but Ricky was a sweet guy. Had a romantic heart. You follow? Yeah, I follow. (laughs) 
We'd come here a lot. He used to hide little gifts for me under the Wagalia shrub. Said one grew in his family's greenhouse back on Prosperous. Anyway, I guess I sort of took it as a sign when I saw I was right near the gardens. I figured I could hide what I needed under our shrub. <laughs> Almost surprised I remembered it. I haven't thought about Ricky in years. But I guess there's some things you remember, even after you've forgotten them, you know? Sure. I tried to derail the conversation. This wasn't the time for reminiscing. We needed to stay focused and move quickly, sprained ankle or no. And now Cherry had all but stopped in her tracks, gazing around fondly at the floor around us. All I needed was Cherry and those damn bottles stashed back at my bar, and I could start thinking about my next move and how to get it made before the Syndicate's muscle hid out far. But for some reason, Cherry had picked this moment to get nostalgic and wasn't taking the hint. I tell you, Stone, that Ricky sure was a stretch of tall, dark, and handsome. Real tall. Tall enough to climb. <laughs> and those eyes. Those eyes could stir up a honeypot and nothing flat. If he'd had asked me when I was 19, I would have jumped station with him and to hell with my sisters. They could work out their own futures. Of course, he didn't ask, and... Then he got caught up in that mess over on Magnamator and never came back to Outfar. Shh. Footsteps. Someone was coming. It might be garden attendants doing a morning inspection of the grounds, or it could be one of Stratford's AEL peacekeepers sweeping for people passed out in the public gardens, either because they'd hit the good times too hard last night to make it home, or because they didn't have a home or rented bed to go to. Or it could have been neither, just another early morning botany enthusiast taking in the quiet. But whoever it was, they were close. I didn't want to draw any attention, and two fellas out for a morning stroll in the memorial gardens just before station sunrise, which is what Cherry and I looked like with her in that formless jacket and her hat pulled low, were likely to get plenty of attention, at least from certain sets of eyes. I pulled Cherry off the path and into the shadows between two hedges. She was pressed close to me, and there was nowhere to put my arms but around her. I could feel the surge in her chest as her breath caught, and I could feel her muscles tightening under my grip, growing taut with fear. Or maybe it was something else. I never saw who the footfalls belonged to. The sound of footsteps grew for a terrible moment, then veered away and became fainter and fainter. I let loose a breath I didn't realize I had been holding. Nolan. She was looking up into my eyes now, her face only inches from my own. I could feel her hot breath on my chin. Her eyes were heavy and her lips parted. Every part of me, every part of me, ached for her in that moment. But the memory of those footsteps reasserted itself, and I pushed her away. We should get moving. Sure. It's this way. 
Cherry led me in the direction of a sweeping cobblestone staircase, but when we reached it, she grimaced and drew to a halt. You all right? Honestly, I... I don't feel so good, Nolan. We're almost there, kid. You just need to stick with me a little bit longer, and we'll get you back to safety, I promise. What I didn't mention was that she was looking a little green, and had developed a decent sweat that I hadn't noticed holding her in the bushes. My ankle's killing me, and that's a lot of stairs. I, I just don't think I can. I... I looked at the staircase. It wasn't but two flights, but if I'd just rolled my ankle, I wouldn't want to climb it either. However, at the top of those steps, tucked in amongst a garden of plants transplanted from Earth, was a box of tritogenia that could link me and Cherry Cordial to over a dozen murders. Okay, Cherry, I can go get it. Where is it, exactly? Near the water gardens. There's a wagalia bush near the willow tree. There's a gap there, about a foot or so. The box and my bag are under there. What kind of bush? A wigalia. You can't miss it. Big bush, light purple flowers, near the willow tree. There's a group of flowering shrubs. This one has purple flowers. Okay. Okay, I'll go. Wait here for me. Don't move. Relief washed over Cherry's face. For the first time since her going away party the night before, She smiled a real smile at me. Thanks, Nolan. I won't. I'll be here. I'll be right back. Sure, Nolan, but hurry, yeah? I got a bad feeling. I know, kid. You and me both. Be right back. I loped off at what I hoped was a casual speed. Nothing suspicious or noteworthy here. Just a typical guy out for a walk alone in the garden in the pre-dawn hours. Could be any number of reasons. Fight with the old lady, touch of insomnia. I could even be one of the planet-side industrialists, suffering from yacht lag and sticking to my ground-side schedule. That would make sense. That wouldn't be weird at all. I repeated it to myself silently like a mantra while I climbed the stairs forcing myself to take them one at a time. At the top of the stairs, I saw a sign for the water gardens and followed the path in that direction. I passed between a drooping willow tree and a dogwood with bone-white leaves, and then I saw the purple flowers that Cherry had described, blooming across a large bush amid other flowering greenery. I looked over a low railing on my right-hand side and could see Cherry below, shifting her weight from one foot to the other. I lifted my hand to wave at her, but decided she wouldn't see me anyway, and it was best not to call the attention to myself. The lights and the filters on the atmospheric shield were shifting to their morning setting, and the sky was slowly drifting away from blackness to a soft blue. Usually, even after all these years, Watching a simulacrum sunrise put me a little on edge, but not today. I guess I was ready for last night to be over. I took a quick glance around to make sure I didn't have company, and once I knew I was alone, I moved between the bushes toward the wigalia and bent down on my knees to reach around near the roots. It was easy to find, just like Cherry said, 
and as I jammed my arm in up to the elbow, another of Cherry's promises came through. I felt the box, smooth and solid against the soft soil. I worked my hand around the back and tugged it out, scraping the top along the low-lying roots. Then it was in front of me, just as I'd seen it two nights before in Salome's. The dark wood I'd taken for mahogany clearly wasn't, judging by the myriad shallow gouges on the lid, but the inlay was exactly what it looked like. 100% genuine only to be found on that home world we lost except no substitutes, pearl. You see, I know my gemstones much better than types of wood. At each corner was a small orange bobble cut to a hundred precise faces, and each one flashed even in this low light like a tiny menacing sun. This box alone was worth more than an honest man makes in a year. Two nights ago, I hadn't had any curiosity about its contents, and now, knowing what was inside, that hadn't changed. Even still, Unlike that night, I was going to open it. The latch was both sturdy and easy to open. A marvel of craftsmanship, perhaps only rivaled by the silent, frictionless hinges on which the lid of the box swung upward. Inside were six bottles of Tritogenia, two rows of three, each square bottle separated by a thin, velvet-covered wood each with a stopper of what I guessed to be the same dark wood the box was made of, and each a little larger than my fist. One look at the way the bottles fit inside the box told me that this decadent container had been constructed specifically for them. I looked around and noted that the walkways were all still clear. I slid the box toward me, and then, for some reason, a reason I'm not too clear on even now. I opened the box again and took in the six glass vials, polished and corked, and each filled with a milky white liquid almost luminescent in the artificial early morning light. I don't know why I did what I did next. It's not like I'd never seen a Tritogenia bottle before, and frankly, there's prettier bottles on the shelf back at the club. I'd even seen the stuff inside, though that was rarer. Maybe I even had a taste myself once, back on a planet almost as far away in kilometers as it is in years. But it's not like I was going to pop open that stopper and have a belt there by poor Ricky Hampers with Galia Bush. But damned if I didn't stick my paw in that box and fish out one of them bottles. Maybe I just wanted to feel the heft of it, to feel the weight of something that had outweighed the lives of 18 spacers on the coal ridge. And there, once I'd pulled the bottle out and seen the flashes of light race up and down its etched contours with every tiny twist or flinch of my wrist, I saw the parchment underneath. Something in my brain jerked violently trying to force me to realization, but I didn't make the connection. Sure, I thought it was strange, but I didn't think about what it meant. Instead, 
like a damned idiot standing there exposed for anyone to pass by and discover, and leaving Cherry alone at the bottom of the staircase, I dug each of those bottles out and set them aside, then did the same with the velvet-covered wooden grid inside. Like everything else about this box, from the latch to the hinges, sliding out that wood and exposing the documents underneath was smoother and easier than picking a dead man's pockets. I pulled the document out, flipped it over and squinted at it in the low light of what passed for early morning. I can't tell you if I recognized the letters first or just the way the document was laid out. I couldn't read a single word. It was obviously encoded, but I didn't need to read the thing to know what it was. A Sisters of the Madre Benevolencia Marriage Contract. I couldn't read the names, but I could see them on the document and the unmistakable twisted paisley shape of the letters and the traditional crimson ink used. I couldn't read the terms of the nuptial proposal, but the fact that the contract was traveling in a box clearly meant to hold both it and six bottles of Tritogenia gave me a good idea of what was being offered as dowry. And I also knew that the official seal of the Madre Benevolencia Grandest Mother at the bottom of the document meant that this whole thing not just the marriage contract, not just the smuggling of one of the most tightly regulated hallucinogens in the sector and one of the most jealously guarded treasures of the church, but also the efforts to reclaim these things was happening with the attention and sanction of the highest levels of the most powerful religious body in the Gaia Compact. Dietz hadn't taken the syndicate. He'd taken the Sisters of the Madre Benevolencia, what would they do to get back what was theirs? Would they go as far as to send their seraphs? It was extremely unusual that those monsters were turned loose. And then I remembered what Flynn Morgan had said earlier that night. An unexpected diplomatic shuttle from the GC. For a moment, the implications began to dawn on me, falling one on top of another, again and again like cards dealt by a blackjack dealer gone mad. They were here. It was the Seraphs who'd gotten to Watts and his men on the Coleridge. Worse yet, it was the Seraphs who'd gotten to Dietz. I watched the world stretch and fall away until my hands and the contract in them seemed miles away like looking through the wrong end of a telescope, or maybe the scope of a rifle. All at once, I thought of Cherry, and I realized just how exposed she was down there at the bottom of the staircase. Exposed, alone, and afraid. The bulky clothes wouldn't matter, the silly walk wouldn't matter, even the waves of strawberry hair she'd been brave enough to sacrifice she hadn't been able to stop her tears wouldn't matter because she was down there now and if the Madre Benevolencia had sent their seraphs that girl's fear would be a lighthouse blazing bright enough to draw them from anywhere on the station and if they found her 
When the world snapped back into place, I was already running, sprinting back towards the stairway. There was no more time for subtlety, no time to play it cool and blend into the quiet morning. I heard every crash of my footfalls as I thundered down the walkway, and I didn't care. If someone noticed me, I could deal with it. If someone stepped out of a blind corner in front of me, they could deal with it. I had to get back to Cherry Cordial, and so I ran like there was a lit match tied to my shoes. And as I ran, I tried to will myself to breathe and not to panic. I reached the crest of the stairs and stopped, almost pitching over. She was down there, and she wasn't alone. Cherry was surrounded by three men and a woman all wearing the purple and black favored by the Madre Benevolencia. Seraphs don't wear ritual garments or funny hats, but one of the men was staring a hole through Cherry, who was crying and blubbering like she was on fire, even though no one was touching her. And that told me everything I needed to know. I watched, helpless, unable to move and unable to hear what they were demanding of her, but knowing exactly how this would play out. Her thoughts, her feelings would give her away. They'd have her, and then it would only be a matter of time. Days, maybe only hours, before they'd get me. Cherry was a good girl, one of the best, but things like toughness and loyalty didn't enter into the equation. She'd give me away just by trying not to, and once they were on me for the Tridogenia, they wouldn't stop. They'd put their scribes onto me until they found enough secrets, enough deals, enough folks who'd placed a hefty wager on double zero to extradite me back to compact space. And that would be the end of Nolan Stone in more ways than one. Or even if they failed to do that, they'd finally give Wallace the rope she'd need to hang me here. That kind of smuggling risks war, and risking war falls squarely enough into the common definition of being a dick to get me booted under a violation of the third law. There were no more ways out. Unless an idea occurred to me. A bloody, awful, terrible idea that turned my stomach just to think of it and made me even sicker when I knew in the space of half a heartbeat that I was going to do it. For all of its hallucinogenic capacity and all of its religious significance, Tritogenia is, first and foremost, alcohol. Alcohol so strong and pure that it puts most of what I pour at Salome's to shame. I pulled open Cherry's bag and saw the tangle of soft blue fabric adorned with ribbons of white silk. Sorry, Cherry. But you wouldn't have gotten the chance to wear it again anyway. From the walkway over the amphitheater, I wasn't quite directly above where the group of Madre agents had Cherry. But I was close. If they were still standing there, She hadn't given me up yet. They might not even yet be sure that her terror was about the smuggling or the murders on the coal ridge. I tried not to look at them below me, 
but it was either that or watch what my hands were doing, and I couldn't bear that. So I stared, almost unblinking, as two stories below me, Cherry Cordial was having her privacy annihilated in a way most people would never be able to imagine. Tears were pouring down her face, but I could see her jamming her bottom lip out, defiantly and desperately trying to hold shut a mental door she'd never be able to bar. Not to them, but she was trying. She was a good kid. I pretended they were someone else's hands. Those hands popping open the stopper of one of the bottles, pulling Cherry's beautiful dress into strips and dousing them in the milky white viscous liquor. It was someone else's fingers shaking as they jammed a wad of the ruined dress into the narrow neck of the bottle. It was someone else's hands that now held my lighter. Someone else, because it it couldn't be me that was about to do this thing. About to do this to Cherry. Cherry, who was a good kid. Cherry, who had only come to my bar because she wanted to make a better life for her sisters. Cherry who had been unlucky enough to get a bad break and smart enough to make something out of it. Cherry Cordial. One of my favorites. Then, far below, Cherry's eyes darting wildly around the courtyard happened to work their way up to the walkway, and they found me. They widened in a relief and a trust so palpable it would break your heart. She knew I was here. She knew I'd make everything okay. And I knew that I never could. So I didn't bother pretending it was someone else who flicked that lighter and set the flame into the cloth. I also didn't bother pretending it was someone else who tossed the flaming glass bottle at the girl with the newsboy hat and shoe polish pixie haircut. But I couldn't watch it land. So I won't pretend it was someone else who charged away from the walkway back the way he'd come, racing like hell itself was coming to claim its due. I ran, but I still heard the crash and I heard the bassy thump as the air around them all caught fire. Cherry, who barely managed to avoid a fiery death only hours earlier, ended up dying in fire anyway. I heard, but I ran, racing like a coward, racing like a killer, racing like I'd raced a hundred times before and hoped never to race again racing back towards the life I've worked so hard for and paid so much for. Racing back toward the stockyards and toward Solomon's.
Confessions from the Nocturne Nebula, Episode 3, Coupe Jubilee. Produced by Yabium Music and Arts. Directed by Dale Rasmussen. Executive Producers Carly Shorman and Mark Anderson. Written by Carly Shorman and Dale Rasmussen. Sound design and original music by Devin Morris. Audio engineering by Devin Morris and Mark Anderson. Featuring Anna Caton, Austin Campbell, Ashley Naftul, Katie Lee Faulkner, and Dale Rasmussen. Tune in next week for another exciting installment of Confessions from the Nocturne Nebula. <laughs>